didn't have Skype open on my computer, so it just <laughs> called me on my phone. Oh, call, I called you on your cell phone? You did, on Skype. Like, uh, like uh, that's a Drake song. You used to call me on my cell phone. Why you got to fight with uh, me at Cheesecake? <laughs> exactly. So, oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold one second. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh no, I have my bell too. Wait, it's broken. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, oh what happened oh, wait. to the bell? I don't know. Hold on, wait, it's broken. Hold on, hold on. Here we go. Oh, oh no. <laughs> it, it, oh, man. Have you what been, like, hell? digging it much? I put it in my bag. Oh, you know what? Yeah, okay, wait, wait, wait. Something Why you got to fight with me at Cheesecake? <laughs> 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 Fix that when you put before you put it up, would you? Put it, yeah, to put that in post. Fix that in post, oh, yeah. In post. yeah. Oh, Don, how are you? I'm good. How are you? It's it's a, a, a an odd Monday morning for me. Um, odder than to, most. Yeah, odder than most. Uh, two two things have thrown me off. One is I um, I I usually play hockey on Monday nights, and uh, uh, last night my league was moved, so I played on Sunday night. Then so, I don't play a hockey game tonight, so I'm I'm like more. Um, I, it feels more like a Tuesday for me, and which means huh. I'm more tired than normal. Because mm. I usually on Sundays I try to go to bed early, and last night I went to bed at like one. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, part part B of my weird week is that one of my kids is uh, he's out of school, he is tracked out, so he is in camp. So um, I and he's at golf camp right across the street from my my office. So I uh, had a little different schedule and dropped him off this morning. So, so what does that what does that expression mean? Tracked out. Oh yeah, yeah, this is like a very, I think my county specific thing. So in year-round schools, there are uh, tracks of students, and so the way that um, Raleigh managed uh, growth and population back maybe twenty or twenty-five years ago, uh, instead of building a whole bunch of new schools, they uh, uh, said, okay, we're going to give an option to, to families that if you want to go to year round school, you can, and, um, essentially splitting a school up into four tracks at all times, three tracks will be in and one track will be out or as it's, uh, known in the vernacular here, tracked out. So, um, the, when, when kids go back to school after they're tracked out, they go back into maybe a different classroom. Um, you know, they'll spend their entire track in one class, but then when they're tracked out, someone else is tracking into their, to their class. And then it kind of like shuffles around. So it was a way to, to increase capacity, um, within the schools and run them all the time. Yeah. yeah so that's that's, yeah so that increases so what's the it's it's three in one out three in one out so that increases capacity like 25 percent right right very clever and now do the teachers work year-round or do they also track out so they track out at the same time okay Uh, yeah so they so So it's just it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't change the teachers student you know right they, all it does is it just t- takes these buildings that would otherwise sit unoccupied 25% of the year and uses them. Right, right. And um, there, I think there are some savings on other infrastructure. So um, in, in cer- maybe in middle school, I think, and maybe in certain elementary schools, a phys ed teacher um, may, may work because they, they don't have a classroom. They'll work all year round. 
And so they would just take normal holidays whenever, whenever, you know, vacation, whenever they wanted to, um, you know, within, within the rules. So, uh, but, um, then, you know, the, the, uh, office staff and the janitorial staff, they work year round as well. Um, and so the buildings are being put to, you know, to full, full use. And we have what makes it possible, which this wouldn't exist, couldn't exist in Canada, um, is that there's air conditioning in our, in our schools. And I don't know, I wouldn't mean like in New Jersey, do you have air conditioning in schools? Is that a thing? That's a, that's a really good question. I can tell you that the school, like the school that my mom taught in, um, does not have air conditioning. Um, I don't know. I think New Jersey schools do. So when you get down like as far south as New Jersey, it starts to, you start, you start to need air conditioning. Right. Um, but and yeah, obviously, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. And of course so, in, in North Carolina, you would for sure. So, yeah. And, and, so, and apparently they have heating too, huh? They, they do apparently have heating. Um, so, and this, this time of year is really nice here. This is, this is my favorite time. Um, because we, you know, last week it was 90, um, and, uh, you know, mid, mid October, early October, it still feels like summer. And then it's, it, we're definitely in a, a fall feel right now where the mornings are in the fifties and then it's the high today's 80. But even, even in my, you know, my, my kid's school and, uh, Jack, my older son goes to a school that's, uh, just celebrated its hundredth uh, anniversary last year. And, um, you know, even, even in a school like that, you, you really, I mean, especially in a school like that, you really need air conditioning all throughout the year. Cause last week when it was 90, it would have been crazy hot in that school in October. Right. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, one, one child is tra- is tracked out and is uh, golfing. And then the other uh, child is, uh, is at school, which, uh, makes her an interesting, uh, schedule. They, they now have been in two separate schools on two separate calendars for this. We're like a, a year and a half into it and neither, gets particularly upset when the other one is in school and, and that one is, or one is out of school and they have to go to school. Um, because we remind them that it flips. So, right. And they've had now enough experience in their life and probably are old enough that they can realize that, that time exists, not just in the moment, but there's a future and a past. And yeah. It's not like it's not and, like dogs that are just always in the moment, <laughs> right? Right. Like why, and who are, who are always tracked five? out? <laughs> yeah, hundred percent tracked out, and and but always thinking, why can't you walk me right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. I want to. I want a treat right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and if you gave me a treat now, five minutes from now, I forgot that I had a treat earlier. I still want a treat. I still want a right treat now. right now. Yes. Oh, um, speaking, speaking of dogs, uh, the ad- adventurous Stanley yesterday morning, um, took a, uh, 45 minute, uh, adventure outside of our backyard, which is not, he, which is not normal for him. He's, uh, a very close to home dog that we, uh, fence in and he does not have a, um, a, we don't have an electric fence or anything, but, um, we had some, uh, some of our, my kids friends over, uh, on the weekend and uh, on Saturday. And one of them, um, must have left a, a door ajar in our backyard. Um, and then, uh, so seven, seven AM Stanley gets up and, uh, he wants to go out. So I let him out and then I go back to sleep. And at seven 45, I wake back up. Normally I'm woken up five minutes later with a bark or a wine at the door. Um, and I said to Danny, 
did you let the dog back in? She said, no. So then we get up and, and, uh, go search for him throughout the neighborhood. But he, uh, I don't know if this is like this with your, with your dogs, but if he gets out, he doesn't go very far. He was in our front yard. And <laughs> as soon as he saw us, he started whining and wanted back in and wanted to treat. Of course. So, uh, yeah, but he, uh, yeah, made his, you know, made his way outside a little bit of an, Sure. Uh, and, uh, it's, I, I'm always, it always freaks me out. Like when, when the dog gets out, cause you know, you don't want to have your dog get out and then be hit by a car because he's not used to being out and, and not, you know, ushered across the road. And maybe he ends up in a pile of deer poop or whatever, but he was, he was fine. Yeah. Our, our dogs, uh, occasionally like we have a, we have the whole new, new fence situation that we've talked about. Um, but we have a gate that ha- now has a spring, uh, but sometimes, uh, it needs a little bit of adjustment and it doesn't doesn't always close, and if it doesn't close, um, uh, and you don't notice that it hasn't closed, then they can push their way out. Uh, but that's only ever happened to to Kristen because I always make sure the gate is latched. Um, of course you not, do. I'm not, you know, not 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 uh, casting aspersion. I'm just reporting data. Um, and uh, yeah, but uh, on the times when the dogs have gotten out, they've always they both stayed together, which is kind of interesting. And they've also not gone very far, and so she's always been able to spot them. And 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 generally, they either come or like you know, if they're she'll catch them when they're stopping to pee or poop or something and so it's not it's not not been catastrophic but it has the potential yeah. to be bad but yeah that's interesting that they stay together we had neighbors who had uh dogs in our old neighborhood um and they they had i i don't know they were australian shepherds or you know the dogs that are roaming dogs that wanted to run and they were constantly getting out but the same thing they would always take off together and so if you found one the other one was right right there and they were probably finding uh, like small children or or cattle or sheep or, right. or other dogs to herd <laughs> they were herding something yes. yeah they went to find some some deer some turtles yep. Yep. Some, yep. some animals out there oh good um so yeah that's uh we're 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 back in a weird weird schedule here i had a weekend uh with no uh youth hockey no kids hockey this weekend so that was it was uh a little quieter i did a lot of, um, I did laundry. I, uh, um, I cooked and I'm going to come back to that cause it's part of our ongoing history of Canadian cuisine, uh, segment in a minute. Um, and, but it was a kind of a nice, nice little, uh, nice little quiet weekend. And you've been traveling a lot. I, I mean, we have to talk about our trip that we took together. But you were away again last week doing other food safety stuff. Yeah, and I'm away. I'm away this coming week, and I'm away next week. And it's just it's just travel all, all of October. I've got either one or two trips every every single week. Oh, and by the way, by the time you hear this episode, the uh, Geneseo episode will be posted. But as we sit right. here recording this today, it's not posted, um, just because I just haven't gotten around to it. But uh, it's it's I want to get it done because now. If I don't, then uh, then we we're, we're we got two in the can, and that's that's never a good situation. So don't want to get behind, and it, it, w- it won't take that much time. So um, I, just good. Need, I just need to actually just make the time and do it. So maybe, maybe even today, I got, I got a block of time today um, after we finish this, and after I have lunch with a colleague, um, and before an afternoon meeting, I should, I've got a nice block of time. I should be able to get it posted. So. Nice. Well, and I, I don't, um, I, I, I don't want to pressure you on these because I'm usually the one who's sitting on one. So it's, uh, as you know, as the cliche goes, those in, in glass houses cast, cast very few stones or something like that. So, uh, I, uh, you take all the time you need cause I'm going to, I'm going to need you to think that way with me at some point, like maybe with this episode. Well, and you know, and the thing is I, I would have, I would have jumped right on it. Um, but the, the day that we recorded the Geneseo episode, I think 
think that was the day that the previous episode uh, had only right. just been posted, and so I'm like, oh well, I can't. There's no point in rushing. Uh, but now, uh, now it's uh, it's now now we need to get busy because it will be it will be it will be uh, uh, late if I don't get it done in the next couple of days. So yeah. Anyway, it's it's all good. The fans are always happy to to hear whenever yeah. we say something, uh, whenever we have to say it. So. Right, right, right. Well, so um, before we move on from this, and uh, if you've listened to the previous episode that's already up, um, you'll know that we were in uh, Geneseo, New York, and hosted by um, the most fantastic um, host I think I've I've ever sort of had from a um, smoothness of travel and being super comfortable. Um, so, uh, Beth McCoy from Geneseo, um, has, uh, has been a listener for a long time and invited us to go do, uh, a, a live recording. And, um, it was, I mean, such a fun, such a fun, uh, couple of days. And, um, you know, I, I think from a, a show standpoint, um, it, it I think it, it worked work pretty well. Um, and, but just, a, you know, great time, uh, hanging out, getting lots of really, I thought some of the best, um, uh, audience participation and feedback, uh, from, from questions of our segment of everyday food safety, uh, popping up and, uh, and just really be cool being around, uh, students who have happened upon us, um, from their classes and, and meeting some faculty members there. And so, you know, big, big shout out to Beth, um, for, for hosting us and what a yeah great time. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the live shows we've done before have been food safety, like a sort of a food safety professional audience. And this was very much not that. This was very much the, the lay audience, which I think composes a significant fraction of our listeners. Um, and it, it's just it was it was good. I mean, the, the quality of the the questions was good. The, the whole quality of the whole yeah the whole the whole experience was very um, wonderful and very seamless. And so again, yeah, thanks to Beth yeah, for making and, all that happen. Yeah, and I got to meet uh, your parents. Tom. Yeah, we had really like n- a nice time. And um, I don't. I mean. I don't know what they. Uh, I, I I don't know where you came from, but your parents are lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any any defects in my personality are not due to them. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a, I mean surprising. I didn't know what to expect. No. It was, <laughs> a, it was a lovely. Uh, really like a, a, a nice time. It was uh, one of the, one of my more um, memorable trips uh, for a, a place that I hadn't been to, and um, just a great you know great time. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, we've got that. We have a ton of stuff, uh, um, to talk about. Um, but I do, I want to get this one, uh, sort of out of the, uh, out, out of our list first, uh, before I forget about it. And it's uh, something I tweeted about yesterday and, uh, tagged you and sent a picture. I, uh, roasted a, uh, a turkey breast, uh, yesterday, uh, to celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving. Um, and so, uh, the, the real Canadian Thanksgiving was actually, um, a week ago from today on October 8th. Um, but, uh, we, uh, we, I kind of forgot to do something for that. And so this weekend being that I was, uh, home with no hockey, I decided that I would, uh, roast, uh, roast some turkey and, and do a traditional, uh, Thanksgiving meal. Um, this, uh, fits within our, uh, ongoing history of Canadian cuisine segment because, uh, Canadian Thanksgiving is a different day than, uh, us Thanksgiving. And 
this is as I research this a little bit. Um, there's not a really great explanation as to why it's a it, it's a different day. Um, so so what what does happen is that. Um, Canadian Thanksgiving follows uh, Columbus Day as a uh, on the calendar um, as, as a but we don't yeah. call it Columbus Day anymore, Ben. Don't we? We call it Indigenous Peoples Day. I don't think that's the case. I, I think, think if well, you look at Wikipedia, <laughs> I think I think if you look at my Apple calendar, it says Indigenous. It says Columbus Day, but it also says Indigenous Peoples Day. Oh uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Indigenous Peoples Day. Well, so we uh, we do stuff on the on Indigenous Peoples Day, um, and uh, which is a much better term. It's it's not nearly as problematic as Columbus Day. <laughs> nope. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it follows uh, that that time, and we so. Often, uh, you know, being one of the few Canadians in a largely an Amer- uh, American state here in North Carolina, uh, <laughs> I'm often asked about. Well, but I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a Canadian consulate somewhere. They got some Canadian <laughs> soil. You could go and and get uh, claim sanctuary if you needed to. I could, I could. I, yeah, there's. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe one of the sanctuary cities here that we'll we'll soon have in Nor- in uh, North Carolina. Um, but it's I, often my uh, my American brethren uh, ask me about uh, you know will wish me a happy uh, Canadian Thanksgiving and then ask what makes it so special and um, the answer is really nothing it's the same as American Thanksgiving and I will read to you directly from uh, Wikipedia. Um, uh, foods traditionally served at Thanksgiving include roast turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes with gravy, sweet potatoes, cranberry sauce, sweet corn, various autumn vegetables, mainly various kinds of squashes, but also Brussels sprouts, and pumpkin pie. Baked ham and apple pie are also fairly common, and various regional dishes and desserts may also be served, including, and you're going to get this, it's it very exciting in a minute here, including salmon, wild game, and butter tarts and Nanaimo bars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I spoiled the surprise because I was already reading from Wikipedia as you were reading that list. So I kind of, you, you telegraphed the punchline, but then I, I could read ahead and see the punchline was coming. So yeah, so you, t- you, you tweeted out this picture of a turkey and I'm like, oh, we're going to talk about Canadian foods. I'm like, that's not a Canadian food. That's exactly. just turkey. It's just turkey. And it's, and with a family of four, it's not even a whole turkey. It's just a nice a turkey boneless yeah. tur- tur- turkey breast that has some, uh, some bacon strips over top. So I can I, add some extra fat. I, yeah, I did. I did see that. I did see the, I did see the bacon strips. Uh, is that a Canadian <laughs> thing or is that just a Ben thing? I know. That's just a uh, epicurious uh, thing. Okay. Uh, hey, so so uh, now one thing you do have um, in Canada um, for uh, a Canadian Thanksgiving is you have a, a an alternate. Uh, uh, alternate uh, way of wishing someone uh, happy Thanksgiving or of saying Thanksgiving uh, en français. So, can f- for our listeners who love to hear you speak French, can you can you <laughs> wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving en français? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> it's right there in Wikipedia. Yeah, um, the, let me let me find this uh, somewhere in French. Um, uh, action, uh, jour d'action de grâce, de grâce. Um, very good. Yeah. Yeah, everybody Thank loves you. that uh, when you speak. Bon French. chance, bon, bon chance, chance. bonny day. Bon, yeah, bonny, bonny ver. He's a, he's a, uh, oh, wait, a, wait, bonny day. That's, uh, that's actually uh, Canadian, uh, Easter. It, yeah, I think so. I think that, that means bonny, good. Bonny day, bonny day, bonny day. Bonny day. Bonny day. Bonny day. Oh. 
Nice. Nicely done. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm slow. That's um, okay. So before we leave Canadian Thanksgiving, I want to highlight this is because I, I have to give you a personal connection, right? So, so item number one was I, I roasted turkey yesterday. Um, item number two from uh, Thanksgiving, it was it, it's it's not a old um, or considerably old. Uh, uh, holiday in Canada. It was, uh, uh, in fact, it moved around at some points Thanksgiving has been celebrated in, uh, in April, other times in June, but as of January 31st, 1957, governor general of Canada, Vincent Massey issued a proclamation stating a day of general Thanksgiving to almighty God for the bountiful harvest, uh, with which Canada has been blessed to be observed on the second Monday in October. Um, and so little, little known fact um, uh, about uh, Vincent Massey, his full-time residency um, while he was uh, governor general, and then after he retired from being governor general, was in the town that I grew up in, Port Hope, Ontario. Wow. And so, yeah, so just, just north, maybe maybe three miles north of, of the town limits, um, he lived in a... Uh, uh, in a state town called Batterwood, and in uh, 1957, um, uh, he um, he actually um, hosted for the first time, and then three times uh, totaling, hosted the royal couple, uh, the Queen and uh, Duke of Edinburgh. Mm. So they uh, on a cross country tour, they stayed just outside of my town. Um, and so this uh, yeah, we this fought estate... we fought a war, so we don't have to do that. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. We still we still have them. They're still on my, my money, um, but. But uh, yeah, so he uh, th- this this estate um, was uh, op- you know open for tours, Batterwood House, and um, uh, was something that when when I was in uh, elementary school we went on uh, field trips to. So, nice, yeah, yeah. So Vincent Massey, uh, also uh, uh, his uh, named for not not him, but I think his family. Uh, um, they they were very prominent um, uh, Toronto uh, socialites. Uh, they own the Massey Ferguson uh, tractor company. I was going to say, is there a Massey Ferguson connection? Because that's the thing yes. I know. <laughs> yep, that's that's them. And they were they also uh, uh, Massey Hall, which is uh, um, the the probably the Carnegie Hall of Toronto um, is is also uh, linked to the Massey family, but that's so not the, the the Massachusetts Pike is not named for them. Is that right? It is. That is correct. <laughs> that is. It's a different. It's yeah, a different Massey. It's a different Massey. I think you're thinking of the Connecticut uh, <laughs> Pike, Pike uh, which is uh, named for uh, John Connect. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, so that was uh, a little uh, Thanksgiving. So uh, I have a Thanksgiving question for you. Sure. I, uh, so I would do you. So we always eat Brussels sprouts um, uh, as part of uh, uh, Thanksgiving. Is that not a U.S.? Like, according to Wikipedia, that's a Canadian thing. It, it is. And I and I love the Brussels sprouts. I mean, I, that is like my favorite vegetable. Uh, it became my favorite vegetable a number of years ago and I realized they just really liked it, but no, it is, it is not a, a traditional, um, uh, thing that you, that we eat at American wow. Thanksgiving or as we call it Thanksgiving. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and nor do we eat, uh, Nanaimo bars or butter tarts. So right. yeah, no, I think, I think Brussels sprouts is, is, is a, uh, definitely it's a, it's a Canadian thing. I mean, it's not like you, you couldn't have it or you wouldn't have it, but, um, uh, and it may, it may be a more of a, a regional thing. I don't know. I mean, because, you know, when I, when I would have, um, Thanksgiving in Georgia, there would be all sorts of traditional like Georgia 
you know, you'd have like, uh, you know, collard greens or something um, because that was a typical green vegetable. But uh, yeah, no, uh, as far as I know, the Brussels sprouts is, is, is a more a Canadian thing. I'm sure if, if there, I mean, again, and not, not that Americans wouldn't have that as part of their family tradition, but yeah. it's not, it's not in the canonical list of, you know, cranberry sauce and mashed potatoes and stuffing and turkey and gravy and, uh, you know, baked sweet potatoes and stuff like that. Well, there you go. So the ongoing history of uh, Canadian cuisine is uh, we'll, we'll add Brussels sprouts. That I, Really, that's where we arrived at is Brussels sprouts as part of a Thanksgiving meal. Um, I didn't – so now that we're looking at Brussels sprouts uh, brought to uh, um, the U.S. by French settlers uh, into Louisiana, and most U.S. production is in uh, California, and 80 to 85 percent of the uh, production is for frozen food. And I'll tell you, um, this is nothing against our friends at, at AFI um, at all who don't sponsor the podcast, uh, but uh, fresh Brussels sprouts to me are, are – my, that's my jam, not uh, not the frozen ones. Uh, so, uh, I yeah, I prepared some – uh, bacon, uh, uh, pan-fried uh, Brussels sprouts um, uh, yesterday that, that was served with uh, with more bacon. You know, use the bacon fat and then uh, bacon. So really, it was just a way to eat bacon. <laughs> so, so two two more important things that we have to read from Wikipedia: the uh, Brussels sprout has long been popular in Brussels, Belgium, and may have gained its name there. And then also a really a really important uh, entry in the Canadian Thanksgiving um, at the very end, where it talks about the scheduling. It says the U.S. also has its own Thanksgiving, but on the fourth Tuesday, fourth Thursday oh. in November. So, so little shout out to the U.S. Thanksgiving. Um, as a small, small part of this Canadian Thanksgiving Wikipedia article. Yeah. So thanks for that. Well, it's quite, it's quite that the U S also has that tradition. <laughs> yeah. It's very quaint. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, well, there we go. Um, so, uh, Hey, so I'm, I'm going to spring something on you. Okay. This isn't, a, it was, so I want you the last week I did not go to the place that you went, which was a, uh, a multi-state, uh, project, um, with, with all of our, um, all, all of our food safety friends in the world of land grant universities. Um, and these are folks, uh, so multi-state project, this is going to sound like insider, inside baseball, insider trading, whatever we want to call it here. But, uh, it's a way for, um, uh, schools uh, and institutions that are receiving hatch funds, which are research dollars that come to uh, land grant universities, um, uh, and to get together and have you know large, large projects that have um, uh, I, I guess like global style objectives. And so one of them is, and I, I don't have the objective in front of me, but it's let's say it's like enhancing the safety of food through research at um, and. and you know, institutions. And, and so I, the last two years, actually it might be the last three years I've missed this meeting. Um, two years ago I had pneumonia last year. I think I was in Dubai maybe. Um, and then, uh, this year I, I had too much uh, travel hockey, but, um, I want, I want, so tell me, tell me about it. What did you guys do? Oh, so it was really, it was really good. Um, and I can't tell you about it because you weren't there. So you missed out. So, um, no, it was, it was, it was, it was really good. Um, Elliot riser from, um, Michigan state, um, organized it. It was in Michigan. It was in the city, uh, called Traverse city, Michigan, uh, which is not where Michigan state, uh, is located, but, um, it is, uh, it is a very, uh, a very nice and scenic part of the state. It's known for its, um, excellent wines, especially uh, white wines. And, uh, as the, so we had the usual, 
reporting where people talked about the, the food safety research going on in their states, but then there was an afternoon uh, of wine tasting followed by a multiple uh, course uh, dinner with with, with uh, you know wine pairings and food, and it was just a really it was a really nice uh, really nice event. Um, the only downside, which is no reflection on the group, is that I I had to fly there via Chicago, and uh, my flight home uh, f- uh, from Chicago to Newark was uh, delayed for almost six hours, and so I, I didn't get to bed um, uh, until. 3 a.m. Uh, the morning of return travel, but you know that's that's you know it's that's the price you pay. Sometimes uh, planes uh, need to be maintained, and uh, I don't want to fly on a plane <laughs> that's broken. So <clears throat> I would much rather wait than fly on a, a plane that is broken. So maintain away, right? Yeah, that's what exactly. they say. That's what they say. Yeah, uh, keep keep maintaining, keep on keeping on. Um, cool, cool, cool. Well, yeah, I missed. I, Missed that, and um, I hope to go uh, next year. Has what's the uh, has it been decided who's hosting next year? Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, notable ukulele and funny hat wearer Dave Baumler from University of Minnesota is going to be hosting. Oh, Minnesota is a great place. It is. I will look. Yeah, and it it, it, there's there's like lots of fun stuff to do and nice folks. So yeah, yeah. Well, that that sounds really really great. Um, Cool. Well, let's uh, let's jump into uh, a bunch of stuff that we do have. uh, sitting in our in our super secret uh, Dropbox folder, um, and uh, there's a few other things that I that I want to talk about. But let's I mean start off with uh, with some feedback, and unless there's somewhere else you wanted to go, let's do it. All right, and I just made my screen go all weird, and here we go. So uh, this is from a listener says, you can read my message, but not my name. Um, Given the ongoing recall for ground beef contaminated with salmonella, is the target uh, internal cook temperature of 160 degrees still uh, 160 degrees Fahrenheit still applicable given poultry is listed at 165 with the pathogen of concern also being salmonella? Would you want to cook the beef to 165, or is the temperature difference partially dependent on the composition of the two meats and the potential load of salmonella present? Um, and so you, um, you, you took a stab at, at this, but I, I, I think um, I'm, you know, I want to also jump in a little bit. So, and this is, uh, we, we've given this, uh, call, uh, this caller, this, uh, listener name, uh, deep beef. So, um, one of the things that um, that we go on, and, you know, you and you and I kind of cite a lot, is uh, are these appendices that USDA has, append, Appendix A and Appendix B, and these are time-temperature combinations for um, depending on you know what we're looking at, either six and a half or seven log reduction of um, you know salmonella in in meats, and and absolutely from my understanding of how the work was. Done to establish those um, those curves is that the composition of meat matters, the internal of the um, uh, starting presumptive load of pathogen um, matters, and and the by composition of meat, I mean how that meat transfers heat, and then also the the fat content uh, is uh, impacts those time temperature um, combinations, and so. It is. I mean, it's a really, it's a really great question because if 
from from the outside, if you kind of look at, okay, we're we look at poultry at 165 and the pathogen concern salmonella. Well, if we take that same salmonella into beef, why does it change five you know five degrees? What what is it about the salmonella that's changed? And and the answer is well, it's really nothing about the salmonella. It's it's what matrix um, that it's in based on the the validation studies that have been completed out there. Right, and and just to give uh, like so we'll list we'll uh, link to the new USDA uh, Appendix A, which is much more comprehensive than the old Appendix A. I think to the point where it's maybe I don't know. It's good as a scientific reference document. It's bad if you if you just somebody just needs a number. But if you look yeah. in particular, if you look at page thirty five in that document, um, it looks at um, it's it's got uh, degrees Fahrenheit. It's got degrees centigrade um, together, and and then it's got from one to twelve percent fat. And then you can see um, depending on the temperature, there may be rather significant. Well, I don't know, not really that significant, but potentially significant, slightly you know I don't know. I mean, maybe it's varying by as much as a couple of minutes, um, the, right. uh, the time needed. Um, and then you have to look at, you know, and you can uh, cross-reference turkey versus beef or, or, or turkey versus chicken. Um, and you can see that there are some differences. It looks like, that's weird. It looks like there's this difference with chicken is more than the differences with yeah. turkey, which doesn't quite make sense. Um, and I worry, I worry a little bit that these are awfully precise numbers that are based fundamentally on numbers. If you dig down to the original peer reviewed research that are less precise, um, so I mean, so my my answer um, to the listener was that 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 I don't think we need to necessarily think about changing um, the 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 temperature, um, and and one hundred and sixty is still probably going to be fine. I think this was probably a particularly badly contaminated batch. Yeah, but if you cook it appropriately, you're still going to manage the risk. The problem is we know that routinely people don't cook it appropriately, and so there's probably there's probably this this same amount of undercooking going on all the time. But if you have a particularly bad batch come through, then that's gonna that's gonna not be protected by this generally poor or or distribution of cooking practices, some of which are poor. Um, so uh, again, I think cooking to 160 is still going to be fine, especially if you do an integrated lethality where you say, well, okay, you know, how long does it take to get to 160, and then how long, you know, what's the the carryover cooking and what's the, the cool down? So I mean, again, if you cook it to 160, you're still going to kill millions of or of the or uh, to 160 as an internal temperature, you're still going to kill millions of organisms at that internal temperature, <clears throat> and I wonder. And we don't have data about this, but I wonder with this particular outbreak, um, you know, if you had a way to go into people's kitchens and look at the in the kitchens of people that got sick, if maybe it wasn't cross contamination, because if you have a, a very contaminated batch. <clears throat> Then it's going to be more uh, possible to spread, you know, detectable or levels around the kitchen uh, that that might cause illness. And so I wonder to what extent cross contamination plays a role. Again, that's pure speculation on my part. It's not not based on anything we know about this outbreak. So, um, yeah. So my, the short answer for me was it it, it one hundred and sixty is fine, but but. Yes, you, we should do that. We should. I could should make that recommendation with the knowledge that, you know, it, the, 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 all of these numbers in the performance standard are based on a starting concentration, an assumption about a starting concentration. Yep. It's based on assumptions about cooking. It's based on assumptions about fat content, um, and it's based on assumptions about lethality. Because you know, 
Uh, on page uh, 33, it talks about uh, 6.5 log lethality versus 7 log lethality, which is a very small difference um, in log lethality, but it ends up being a rather can be a rather significant difference uh, in terms of in terms of time needed to achieve that. So, yeah, right, right. Well, and and skipping forward to page 36, where there's uh, a focus specifically on non-intact. Um, um, meat, chops, roasts, and steaks, and you know we're we're looking at salmonella. The um, risk management decision is a five log reduction. Um, so, but, you know, and I my guess is that's based on um, the uh, assumptions on uh, likelihood of um, of load uh, contamination. One one thing that that so before we leave this, I have, I have two things. One is. Um, on, on page 36 uh, of, of Appendix A, they talk about this time temperature table is based on thermal def, death curve for salmonella and beef emulsion in tubes derived from Goodfellow and Brown from 1978. Um, and I wonder... Um, I wonder how much... you know The, the assumption of... Uh, uh, the you know beef in a tube being different or the same from beef not in a tube, um, you know, sort of taking extrapolating the laboratory results to to real life and and how that you know how much that matters, um, and and especially this you know the the work that this is based on is is over you know it's forty years old um, as well, and I wonder if those assumptions um, still um, still uh, hold up. Um, the second thing is this this whole conversation is one that I, I spend quite a bit of time uh, on when I talk about um, uh, really HACCP and um, and variant retail HACCP and variances to the food code when, when training environmental health folks on this area. And it, 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 there's almost always a time in that class where I I ask a question about what's the you know what's the safe internal temperature for cooking poultry, um, and at, you know 100% of the people in the room can answer 165, and it's because they're trained on the food code. That's what it says, and then we spend about 20 minutes or half an hour talking about how did they how, how did the food code, you know, in in uh, Richard Fingers arrive at that, or the authors of the food code? How did they, how did we come up with 165 degrees and all of the stuff that we just stepped through? really play into it. It's, well, what is there? There's a risk, uh, conversation. What, where do we start? How, how much do we need to reduce it by in what foods? What's the pathogenic concern? What are the differences between, um, you know, when we have, we look at all poultry, well, well there are differences between Turkey and, and, um, uh, and, and chicken and duck, uh, just on meat composition and, and heat transfer may impact that. So all of that stuff. And just to try to scrape the surf um, or pull back the the curtain a little bit on that with with environmental health folks to say we have these numbers how we arrived at it is often based on a lot of assumptions and for the you know for the most part really good assumptions but it you know it's it's good to have an understanding of how we get there because once we step outside of the food code we're going to have to make some some assumptions as well um, on you know whether it's through a validation study or or whatever so but it's it always um, it, it always kind of amazes me that there isn't a really good um, foundation or understanding on 
on where the where the numbers come from, and we we kind of trust them. And I say that because I was in the exact same boat and just trusting them, um, uh, you know, a long time ago. And then once I started teaching, I was like, you know, it's, it might be interesting for people to understand where it came from, so we can better get a sense of how those decisions are made. Well, <clears throat> yes. And um, so two so two points. Um, <clears throat> you know, one thing that is often um, when I, when I'm reviewing manuscripts. I pay close attention to um, is like, what are the strain to strain differences? So in Goodfellow and Brown, what strain of salmonella did they, or strains did they use? And were those representative strains? Are the strains that are representative of beef different than salmonella? Do those representative strains change over time? All of that goes into it. But I think often like all of that, like where does this number come from? All of that stuff gets swept under the rug because it's complex. And if you start to dissect where those numbers come from, you realize that there's a whole lot of assumptions, right? Mm. And it, it really, if you, as you begin to dig down in, you realize, wow, it's really, it's really kind of messy and it's not quite as neat and clean as 165 makes it safe, right? It's like, well, there's not really any amount that makes it safe. There's, there's, there's risk assessment and there's risk management, right? And 165 is a risk management decision. And it's a conservative decision. It's probably protected. It's most definitely protective of public health, but would 166 be better? Sure. Is 164 less safe than 165? <laughs> Absolutely, it is. Uh, yep. Is it, it? Could you lower it? I mean, again, it, and I, I, I for some reason I'm thinking about um, almonds, right? And the five log reduction for almonds versus the Almond Board of California, you know, netted out at four logs as right, their right. as their number. Uh, why? Because again, some risk manager somewhere said, you know, four logs based on what we know about inactivation kinetics and what we know about, or actually. It's it's independent of kinetics, but what we what we know about prevalence and concentration and um, you know serving sizes, et cetera, we're we're we're, we're comfortable with four, and so it, it does it does expose to people. And again, if your if your job is to teach the food code and get people to do the quote unquote the right thing, you probably don't want to get into the complexities of how do you calculate d values and z values and you know all of that, right? But on the other hand, there are people that very much definitely need to know that. Um, yeah. And if nothing else, even if you don't need to know that, you should be aware that it is there. It, it is. It is not. It's. It's a little bit. It's not arbitrary because if it was arbitrary, we could pick one twenty and say that was just the same as one sixty, right? But it's not. Um. And so it really. It. It is. It is arbitrary, but it is also protective of public health. But. But don't. Enforce. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Don't get. Don't get too wrapped up around what exactly what the number is, but realize that that's a that's a that's a pretty good number that everybody is kind of comfortable with, and that and probably we should just leave it at that unless you really want to dig down in and, and maybe risk getting yourself thoroughly muddled up and confused. But but again, if that's if this is your world and you are going to live deep deep in this world, you absolutely need to understand that one sixty five is essentially an arbitrary number. Right. Well, and and let me let me throw in something even more fun on this. So, I 
we we both have our favorite thermometers, right? That are that are out there that we can use to measure this. And so I like the Comark PDT 300. Um, you, I think you like the Thermapen um, as as your your go to. Uh, both of them are accurate to plus or minus two degrees Fahrenheit. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So now, <laughs> so now, not only am I so I'm I'm only measuring with this with this air maybe on the low side if I try to hit and I I did on my my turkey that I roasted last night tried to hit 165 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and if I only got to that point. Well, really, I'm you know uh, at some chance I may be only getting it to 163 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that's a little bit of um, magic uh, about it. But well, and uh, magic's not the right word. That there are, there are assumptions, and we build in um, conservative numbers because of that, and that's a risk management decision. And and it and it's come from from somewhere. Before we, I guess, uh, to segue into something else here um because we're talking about cook temperatures and and outbreaks and illnesses um i i put something in the the file um a couple of weeks ago about a, a kind of a massive salmonella outbreak in canada linked to um raw chicken the frozen raw breaded chicken products primarily and what is kind of amazing on this this is um since 2000 um since um 2017 um there have been 433 lab confirmed cases of salmonella linked to an outbreak um, really multiple outbreaks um or multiple clusters of this large outbreak um of frozen chicken items and it's I mean, it's kind of it's a little bit insane to me um, because you've got just so many illnesses for a product that looks like it, it might be cooked. And, and I, I think this is one of the ones where it's not like a raw uh, chicken product where um, – taste and look um, and uh, how a consumer handles things are, is probably based on on that um, you know uh, those um, uh, sensory kind of values where you've got a product here that that has been partially cooked a little bit to set breading and and often may just be warmed up um, not not really cooked, uh, to, to, a um, a safe internal temperature. Um, but you just got like a massive amount of, of illnesses for the, you know, right now there's, um, $10 chicken fries, which is the, uh, the actual name of the product. Um, earlier, uh, in, in 2018, there were no name brand chicken nuggets. Um, and, and both of these are you know, sold through, um, the same chain in, um, in Canada. But it's uh, to this one to me is less likely, and, and really based on some some of the work that that you did uh, about a decade ago, it's less likely to be a cross contamination issue, and more likely to be an undercooked issue um, that that's leading to these uh, right and, and undercooked because consumers are confused because it looks cooked, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. if you if you go to the store and you always buy the cheapest looking thing that looks like breaded chicken, um, and and then one time you happen to buy one that's that's not fully cooked um, and also happens to be a batch that's particularly contaminated for whatever reason, well, then you have this perfect storm where you have 
over 400 laboratory confirmed cases. And, and, th- and so this outbreak is way bigger than that, right? Because that's only the laboratory confirmed cases. So right. it's, it's huge. I mean, and, and again, you know, we've, we've seen, we've seen this, this kind of product cause illness again and again. Um, and I think it's just, people just don't understand that just because it looks cooked, just because the outside is breaded, doesn't mean that it's cooked and you have to actually read the label. And we've talked before about, well, there's a, you know, uh, Getting food safety information on the label is is a constant fight between the food safety people and the marketing people. Um, you, what you really want in giant letters on the front of the package is you have to cook this or you'll get food poisoning, right? And no marketing right. person in their world is going to let you do that. <laughs> um, but that's but that's what you need because obviously people are confused about this and they continue to be confused despite the fact that we keep talking about it on the podcast, Ben. It's like it's right. like not enough people listen. <laughs> not exactly. Well, and and I I, I want to come back to the those messages that are on those packages. It's it's right here in this uh, um, this notice, this Public Health Agency of Canada notice that we'll link to in show notes, it says, you know, these products could be labeled uncooked, which is okay, not bad, cook and serve, ready to cook, and oven ready. None of those. What the hell do any of those things mean, Ben? Right. Right. I, Why doesn't it just say raw? Raw. And, yes. Yeah. And and if we if if we think that people do, and and this is again informed from from research that that we've done yeah. and and yeah. that others have done, that if we say that it's raw, people handle it differently than if we say things like ready to cook. Then we should just call it raw, and 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 just get over it, right? Um, I yeah. wonder. And, it's the, and raw, and you know, in in the world of things that we could say about a food. That's that's not too bad, right? Right. Like like I will as a marketing person, I could live with that. I what I couldn't live with is you know uh, salmonella laden, um, ready to kill you. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so much worse you can do than raw. And and if your research shows that that particular word has an effect on people, we should use that word. I mean, we it's should, a right. it's a no brainer to me. Yep. Yeah. Well, and if we're already calling these unbranded $10 chicken fries, why don't we call them unbranded cook to 165 chicken fries? Cause it really doesn't matter, <laughs> right? It's not, there's not a lot of marketing that's going on with this specific product uh, or, 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 or you know, raw $10 chicken fries, right? Raw. I could, I could live yeah, with raw. that. Raw chicken fries, raw chicken uh, fries, but, but, but a hundred, I mean, or five, 480, confirmed cases. This is, I mean, this is massive. This is not, um, this, this is, this rivals some of the largest outbreaks that we've seen, um, in, in North America. And I don't know, no one's really talking about it. We are, but, but that's about it. Um, so anyway, that, that was in there from a couple of weeks ago and I wanted to make sure we, we came back to it because it, it, it does, it's a similar kind of conversation. It's not about, um, you know, cross-contamination, uh, with, probably with those frozen products. Right, right. Well, because the breading on yeah. the outside is is preventing the cross-contamination. Yeah. And, and, and I suspect it's not 
it's not so much cross-contamination. I really think it's microwaving, right? Like I know right, that right. these products Absolutely. are likely – and in fact, I think – I forget which, which show it was, but Merlin was talking about how he has uh, like a Costco uh, uh, breaded uh, cooked right. chicken product that he that he makes. And he talked about his – you know. and by Trader the way – Yeah, oh, Trader Joe's. Oh, TJ's. Just, TJ's, yes. Uh, thank you. I'm, oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So um, – and it's, and it's a great product. He talked about how he cooks it. He talks about his secret – I have – I'm so totally down with his secret microwave tip, which is twice as long at half the power. I've oh, started yeah. doing that with everything, and it tastes way better. So I, I know he probably doesn't listen to this, but thanks for that, Merlin, um, uh, for sure. But, yeah, I mean, this is this is obviously a common product. People have their own way of cooking it. I'm sure that the Trader Joe's one that Merlin buys, he probably reads the label because he has – you know, he's talked to us, and he knows us, and he knows about food safety. But, um, yeah, it's um, – it's just I really think that if people are microwaving it and they're and they're and they're they're not they don't realize it's raw. Bottom line. Right. Well and and I so since I have kids and we eat well, I don't eat this product very much, these types of products, but my kids eat it all the time. I'm super careful about purchasing fully cooked chicken items. And because I know that our most likely way to, to cook them is with a microwave, right? Like I'm right. not going to spend 30 minutes heating my oven up and then putting these in on a tray. We're, we're often eating them as, um, they're my kids protein source along with a bunch of other stuff that they're eating. But it's, it, you know, especially we, my kids are terrible eaters and we're already making another meal for the two of us. This isn't going to be its own thing. So I'm, I want a product that I can microwave. And I still use the thermometer with it, and I don't, you know, sort of leave it at 135, which is probably what it could be at. I get them up to 165, but uh, I mean, from lots and lots of experience, the um, these products heat very unevenly. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a thinner chicken figure or chicken patty uh, versus a thicker one that comes out of the same bag, maybe 30 degrees difference. Um, if it's on the outside of wow. the plate versus the inside of the plate, it's going to matter. Wow. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. So it, it doesn't, I mean, doesn't surprise me if, 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 if that's a thing, that's how people are, are, um, are, are getting, getting sick from it. Um, all right. So I want to move on to some other feedback and this one's kind of fun because it's one that says, don't reveal my name or my message content on the air. <laughs> but I think we're still going to reveal the message content and we won't say the name. Um, just, uh, I, hi is the message. I was just dropping in a quick line to know if I could send some great article ideas your way for a guest post at your website. Um, if you like my suggested ideas, I can then provide you high quality and this parts in bold Don free content slash article in return. I would expect just a favor of a backlink from within the main body of the article. Do let me know if I can interest you with some great topic ideas. Best regards. So should we, what do you think? Should we put some, some, are we ready for a guest post at our website? Have I, have I lost you? Are you, are you, are you there posting? I'm sorry. I, I, I had, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on a, a little bit of a getting over a cold. And so I've been coughing. I was just, not oh. so, um, well, you know, here's the thing. If they can, if they can provide us with high quality, free content slash article, I mean, I'm down, I'm down, I'm, I'm down, put yeah. it on, get, let us put it on our website. I look forward to, uh, your guest post. So since it's, I'm sure a listener, um, just send us your guest post. Yeah, go for it. We'll, we'll, uh, totally, <laughs> we'll totally post your free article slash content. Um, we, uh, we have, 
we have some more really good feedback um, uh, from someone who says, please, please share all details freely, and we are going to share none of this. Um, so he's a co-founder of a website, and they just hit a big milestone with um, 100,000 users and 500,000 teams, and it's a great way to create things in their thing, which I'm not going to mention. So uh, no, sorry, John. We are not going to uh, share any of this um, thing that does a thing for lots of people. Yeah. All right. So I want to jump forward to something that um, I, I'm not. I'm going to protect all uh, of the the uh, the innocent on this a little bit. But um, uh, a friend friend of the show, friend of ours, um, who if he if he listens to this would know that we're talking about it. Got a. Um, I, I put this in the the notes um, earlier today, and you may have seen him at the multi state meeting last week. Uh, but he was invited to uh, a a very prominent. Uh, conference uh, that you might have heard of, uh, Don, called uh, Conference on Food Science and Nutrition during 25 to 26 February 2019, Rome, Italy. Wow. yeah, the main theme of the conference is, quote, Forum for Food Science and Nutrition for a Better Tomorrow. Um, so he was uh, invited by Christy Jones, who's the program manager. Um, his response, which this is this is why we have friends like this and, and why I love him so much. His response was, sounds good, but will there be ninjas? Um, <laughs> the response was, thank you for your prompt response. Um, please find uh, the above attachment and brochure to have a glance. Um, kindly let us know your interest as, as early as possible. His response was, uh, don't see any ninjas in the brochure. Are you sure this is a fun conference? <laughs> <laughs> there, the response from Christy Jones was, I would like to inform you that this is not fun conference. We are organizing this conference in Rome. So don't <laughs> come if you're looking for fun. fun. But – but um, in February, simultaneously, we were organizing a cancer and obesity conference in Rome. So I guess she's implying that that one is fun. Um, oh, and, well, and and there's a lot of confirmations from Japan. So there could, I mean, there might be ninjas. They're preparing their abstracts so so kindly. Uh, so uh, the response uh, he sent back was, uh, will there at least be people wearing ninja costumes? Uh, that confused uh, Christy, and she said, I don't understand what you're asking. And the last response he sent was a picture, picture of a of child a, in a ninja, in a ninja costume. costume. <laughs> So, um, so I guess we'll be, you know, if you're a listener to the, to the podcast and you're listening right now, look for a guest post, um, on our website, um, uh, information on, uh, making lists, uh, that will appear on our website at some point. And then, uh, if you, I, I guess if you're looking for ninjas, don't go to the conference on food science and nutrition in Rome in February, and it will not be fun. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, and I have to say that the 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 I did that was one of my highlights of going to the multi-state meeting was seeing <laughs> seeing our friend um who uh who 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 was responsible for this correspondence. He's just he's an absolute he's an absolute delight and uh just a, a wonderful wonderful human being making science better um one uh spam email response at a time. So, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, sticking with Alan. you know, here's what we should oh. do: we should just start. We should all of us start responding to all of these with, um, but will there be ninjas? 
And then eventually what will happen is that maybe <laughs> they will start to change the emails. Like we should try to affect some change here. Like we should all be like really interested, but always ask if there's going to be ninjas. And then maybe they'll start to include that there will be ninjas in the marketing material. What do you think? Right. I'm down people- to try it. The, like the spammers will all get together and say, well, the food science people really seem to want ninjas there. Maybe we should yeah. have a fake conference that has ninjas. Ninjas, yeah. At it. Yeah. Um, oh, well, show title, Will There Be Ninjas? Uh, so uh, anyway, moving uh, moving forward with our uh, uh, Canadian Thanksgiving-themed questions uh, from Deep New England. Um, hi, Don and Ben. A friend told me last year that she cooked her turkey with this method, and it came out great. She asked me what I thought about the food safety aspect, and I thought it could be problematic, but I wasn't sure. Um, and Deep New England uh, uh, links to a um, article that we will uh, link to in show notes uh, called "This uh, from the Splendid Table. Um, and uh, so... This is really kind of an interesting um, article. So the the idea is um, spend a couple of days uh, roasting your turkey, um, and you are going to roast it for 20 hours at 170 degrees in in your oven. And the turkey looks looks lovely. Um, so I'll I'll, I'll pray see this a little bit. Um, so. Uh, 36 to 48 hours ahead, you season the inside of the turkey um, and then put it in the refrigerator uncovered for 12 to 24 hours. Then 15 to 25 hours ahead, remove the turkey um, and put it in uh, in the uh, – remove the turkey from the refrigerator, put some oil on it, roast it at 450 for 45 minutes to an hour. Then for 14 to 24 hours, depending on the size of your turkey, pour a quart of good quality apple cider over the turkey, season the liquid in the pan. With a few big pinches of high class poultry seasoning. Um, you know, the high class part is really important. Reduce the oven temperature to 170 degrees Fahrenheit and roast your turkey for at least one hour per pound. Because the oven temperature is no hotter than you want the bird to be at a perfect doneness, it cannot overcook. Um, and so there's some really interesting editor's notes. Um, uh, and, and so there are some comments about this might be um, unsafe and maybe safe. And so an editor's note was added saying um, uh, all of the harmful bacteria on a whole turkey is on its surface and an internal hour of high temperature roasting ensures that all of it will have bit the dust long before you reduce your oven temperature for slow roasting. Given that hour, your bird will be perfectly safe, but you should, but if, but if you should say skip the first hour and go directly to 170 degrees or start with a still frozen turkey or stuff your turkey before it roasts, all bets are off. Any of these practices will encourage bacterial growth in uh, um, cap- caps. They are dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. Follow the directions below, and I guarantee not just amazing succulents, but pristine food safety. And if perchance you have one of those fascist ovens that turns itself off after eight eight hours, Don, what you really need is an Antifa oven. Um, yes. You're going to have to stand guard and turn it back on. The fight against fascism takes uh, constant vigilance. Uh, what can I say? 
So, so what do you, I mean, what do you think about this? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I said to uh, deep new England. Um, I think that the author makes some assumptions. Um, one assumption is quote, all of the harmful bacteria on a whole Turkey is on its surface. It would be R, but anyway, uh, we're not going <laughs> to discuss bacterial grammar here, um, is on its surface and an initial hour of high temperature roasting ensures that all of it will have bit the dust long before you reduce your oven temperature for slow roasting. So, um, that's, that's a big ass assumption. Um, um, Yeah, I, it's not a, it's not a best practice. I would not I would not recommend it. Or if I was going to before I would recommend it, I would want to probably do some experiments and and kind of probe that uh, literally probe probe that uh, turkey to investigate this. Um, it might be fine, um, but it does not sound like a best practice to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, if you if you want perfectly turkey that's perfectly done to 170, what I suggest that you do is buy a turkey, take it off the bone, put it into bags, sous vide it at 170 for as long as you want, um, and then and then take it and put it and do a finished cooking of the surface. That's that's the that's the way to do it. If you, if you and that sounds like a, a lot of work and also would cross contaminate your your kitchen with with turkey. But but that's I'm yeah, it's it, there's some big assumptions here that I'm not sure are warranted. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting, too, that they say or the, the author says um, explicitly, don't do this with a still frozen turkey, because I I don't think that would matter in their argument all that. Much. Right. I it, guess. Right. Yeah. Right. Like the assumption being, well, the, the having the surface of that. Um, if it gets up hot enough, um, in, in that hour, I don't think it matters. So what I'm, what I'm going to do, and this is thanks to deep new England, cause I have an ongoing Evernote, um, list of things to do in the kitchens. Cause the kitchens that are being built currently right below me, will be a great place to do two things. One is I'm going to do this. We're, we're going to make this recipe and see what happens with it in, in, you know, three consumer ovens. Let's do some temperatures on the outside. Let's, let's try to debunk this one, um, or, or confirm it or whatever. And we're going to do it with some stuffed and we're going to do it with, with some frozen ones. I'm going to find out what it, what it does, um, to surface temperatures. Um, and, uh, this, it, it, this is, this is the kind of fun thing that I, that I look forward to doing. This will be a two 2019, uh, Thanksgiving. Um, I'll come back and report on the podcast on cool. this, on this one, Very good. uh, but yeah, yeah. So, um, and this is my, uh, plug to say, if you hear anything like buzzing or being cut or constructed in the background, that is, uh, that are, th- those are the kitchens. Those are the, there. It's all, it all continues to happen. Cool. So cool. Cool. Thanks to deep new England for that. Cause it's a, this is a good one. I actually do. And I didn't do this this weekend cause of, I wasn't doing a, a whole roasted Turkey, but I kind of do like the idea of, um, uh, like putting a bunch of, uh, apple cider vinegar over my Turkey, um, and roasting it. This Turkey looks great. Uh, this one, one seventy roasted Turkey. Well, the, um, the, the, what you mean is the stock photo of Turkey in the article. We don't know if it yes. was actually, uh, well, it says photo Andrew Schloss, who is the guy who, who is the author, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, all right. Yeah. So, so it, it is good. actually a photo by the person that wrote the recipe. So, okay. Yeah. And then we should say this is not new. This is, um, 
actually from well the, the it's it says Turkey Confidential 2015 but the date of the article is November 21st 2013 so right. um it's it's an older piece and so it may have you know made its way around a little bit so um oh. and this is so Turkey Confidential is not something I listen to but the Splendid Table has a podcast hmm. and Turkey Confidential 2015 is a 2 hour uh episode huh. um so we yeah you and I listen to uh to the Dubai Friday uh challenge mm-hmm. podcast and yes. every once in a while we like to have some homework what if we had some homework that said uh listen to the turkey confidential um and let's uh talk about it we don't have to do this for our next podcast but let's try and listen to turkey confidential for um our our thanksgiving podcast let me let me say that i will uh consider not peanut buttering on that on that uh yeah. challenge <laughs> All right, I'm in, I'm putting it into homework, uh, and if uh, we'll link to this, uh, so and uh, and this is us giving our, our listeners some. If you want to follow along at home and do this uh, homework as well, listen to Turkey Confidential. I've not listened to it; it might be terrible, and in fact, might be just about pardoning presidential turkeys. Um, and we'll learn we'll learn together about it. But it is a Splendid Tables annual live call-in show on Thanksgiving, hosted by Lynn Rosetto Casper, guest for the 2015. Uh, uh, addition includes Jacques Pepin, who's a, a very uh, famous celebrity chef, Dave Isey, Nigella Lawson, and Andrew Zimmern. So well, I, of, would, I, would, I would listen just for Nigella because she's a delight. She is. She's great. So, uh, so let's, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Turkey Confidential. I, I have to, while we're talking about podcasts, I have to share, um, uh, I, I did a little bit of uh, podcast tech support, um, cause I subscribed my mom. Uh, so my mom listens, but she usually just listens on the computer, um, uh, to our podcast because I'll post something on Facebook and she'll just click through and, and listen, you know, from, from Safari. Um, but but I while we were in uh, Geneseo I um I I got it to download I had it, the podcast download in uh, Overcast and also in um, uh, Apple's podcast app and she listened to the podcast and she says you know you guys talk really fast. I'm like, I, I think it might be a setting, and so I walked her through. It turns out she was listening with Apple Podcasts, and she was listening at two x. So, whoa! Um, I, 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 yeah, I got, I got her, I got her, I showed her how to fix that. So, oh, awesome! Nice. Hey, so one, one last bit of listener feedback. Uh, which yes. is a long one, so let's uh, let's do this. So, um, okay. So the message is: you can read my message, uh, but not my name. And so we're going to call him Deep Camel uh, for reasons that will become uh, clear in just a few minutes. Um, he says, uh, "Let's see." Um, uh, I wanted to ask a poop-related question so I could be called Deep Doo-Doo, but alas, I have none. Um, I do have some uh, questions from your most recent episode with regard to sanitation solutions. Uh, when you were talking when you were talking about wa- uh, washing chicken, you mentioned citrus juices and vinegar are not effective. Is this just because they're diluted, or is straight vinegar also inefficient? And he says, the reason why is I've always used vinegar to clean my camelback. For those of you that don't know, camelback is a, a bladder uh, a, uh, a plastic bladder that uh, people who go camping and backpacking will use. Um, and uh, Deep Camel writes, I haven't died yet, uh, but now I'm wondering if it's actually doing anything. I know I could also dilute bleach out while that would be probably more effective. I worry about being an idiot and doing it wrong and making the material porous and creating harbored sites or leaching, something like that. So um, so first so first question. Um, uh, I think the question about dilution of citrus juices and vinegar is a good one. Um, and I think in the article that we quoted from 
Um, they did use diluted solutions, but yep. I can also tell you that our work, uh, the work in my lab um, with ceviche, we used straight lime juice, undiluted lime juice, and we didn't see much of an effect on salmonella inoculated onto the fish. So lime juice is the... <clears throat> lowest pH juice that you can use. And so uh, I would I would say that, yeah, you could even try something not diluted, and I, I don't think it would be terribly effective. Um, but one key difference between, let's say, sanitizing chicken and sanitizing a camelback is there's very little organic matter. There should be very little organic matter on the camelback versus on the surface of the chicken. Um, and so protein... Uh, like that the chicken is made up of, um, uh, the, anything that has a lot of protein, right? Uh, whether chicken or fish or beef or, or you know, even a, pro, a highly proteinaceous uh, food product, um, the protein in that food um, will uh, exerts a buffering capacity because the hydrogen ions uh, from the acid uh, associate with the amino acids in the uh, in the protein, and so um, the effective pH uh, when uh, let's say citrus uh, or or vinegar is applied to a proteinaceous food, the effective pH is going to be a lot less, especially at the surface of the uh, of the food. Um, a camelback, because it's plastic and it's not protein, um, it's going to have a much different. Um, uh, different. There's not going to be that buffering capacity. Um, and, I, and again, he says he could bleach it, and I, I also recommend you could bleach the camelback. Uh, but, but I would say too, if you're worried about uh, camelback sanitation, and it's good that you are, um, you should use hot soapy water first. And so, uh, if you want to be sh- again, hot soapy water to remove any uh, you know organic matter, i.e., you know backwash from your from your spit for getting in there, um, uh, that will make the sanitizer more effective. Um, and then you could use uh, vinegar. You could use a bleach solution. Just make sure you use the right concentration. And again, I would say follow. If the Camelback company has recommendations, uh, it would be good to follow those recommendations. But certainly, uh, hot soapy water followed by whatever sanitizer is is a good bet. And then I think the other thing that's really important is when you're not using the Camelback, um, it needs to be drained and it needs to be dry. If you put it away with a little bit of moisture in it, uh, that can promote mold growth, and I think uh, I know this has happened to me with water bottles and other things that you use for camping. If you don't get them completely clean and dry, or you, you should you should store them maybe inverted and upside down so the the moisture drains out, but you don't trap moisture inside because uh, that's gonna that's gonna um, you know that's gonna that's gonna help you there. So, uh, did you do you have any anything to add on on that particular point? Uh, no, but I'm I'm gonna go. I um, I did look up what um, Camelback says about reservoirs, and yeah. so. They say um, use hot water and two tablespoons of baking soda or bleach. Mix the solution inside your reservoir and hold it up above your head while you pinch the bite valve, uh, allowing the bleach water to run through the tube. You can also use Camelback cleaning tabs. Um, Then you let the reservoir and cleaning solution sit for about 30 minutes. Wash the reservoir with hot water and mild soap. Be sure to completely rinse away any bleach or cleaning solution before using it again. Um, And once it's clean, be sure to air dry so no moisture is trapped inside, which can cause mold to grow. And so... yeah, yeah, and so I think you know um, whether it's baking soda, bleach, vinegar, or um, you know any of those three. I think you're really just doing the same same type of thing. Um, you, they don't they don't really talk about wh- how much uh, bleach. You know, two tablespoons of bleach and a bunch of hot water seems like a pretty high concentration. Um, uh, but 
Yeah, it um, and I, but also uh, you know the thing that that's uh, you know important here that we think about a lot in cleaning and sanitizing and equipment in a food service setting uh, or in a, in a home kitchen is that this sanitizing is going to degrade it eventually, right? Like there's going to be a shelf life. The more you clean it, the like more likely it's going to degrade and and have holes, and that's just you know a fact of of having this uh, piece of equipment. But yeah, I mean almost essentially uh, bang on is what they say on their website to what you're saying. Yeah, how about that? Um, um, so, yeah, but you didn't mention anything about holding it over your head. I think you have to twist around a couple of times, but <laughs> I think they, the, I think it's funny that it says hold it up over your head while you pinch the bite valve. Oh, well, I know I get, why. That's, yeah, that's yeah. to get it to to drain completely. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You could you could hold it up over your head, or you could uh, put it on a, a clip or something. Um, like if I. <clears throat> I store all my camping gear uh, in our attic, and so if I if I was still actively camping and I had to regularly clean my Camelback, I think I would make a hook. Uh, I wouldn't hold it over my head because that sounds uh, aggravating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so uh, second question. Uh, this ca- this question came up when you were talking about water cooler nozzle, juice nozzle sanitation. Uh, he writes, I worked at McDonald's in high school, and every night when we closed, the manager would give us a small bucket with soda water, disassemble the nozzles, and leave them to soak overnight. No sanitizer added or anything. As an aside, I'll say I think that might be uh, what they used to do uh, or may still do at the Rutgers uh, University dining halls. Um, <clears throat> uh, Deep Camel continues. Uh, I didn't think anything of it at the time, but now it seems kind of weird. I looked up the pH of soda water, and it's usually between 3 and 4. Would an overnight soak at this pH be enough to mitigate risk? I know Salmonella and Elmano can both survive that pH in frozen strawberry products, and some studies showed Elmano uh, surviving up to three months, so I don't know what to uh, what to make of this. And so I would say, um, yeah, so thanks for sharing your experiences. Um, I, my opinion, the overnight uh, soak in soda water is not a bad practice, but a better practice would be to clean with soap and water, sanitize and air dry, just like we said with the Camelback. Um, I do think um, some McDonald's folks... Oh, there's a typo in my message. Some McDonald's uh, folks, um, uh, uh, sorry, no, uh, given McDonald's focus on food safety, there's very likely a standard practice for how they manage the risk. I know some folks from McDonald's, corporate food safety, are podcast listeners, um, and I'll actually see them soon uh, later this month uh, when I'm in Chicago, and so maybe they can uh, they can chime in if they happen to hear this. Uh, but I'm sure, again, given what McDonald's uh, dedication to food safety, they probably do have a standard practice. The question is whether this is part of that standard practice. So um, anything to add? No, no, nothing to add to that one. Okay. And then uh, third question. Uh, wh- sorry, I have one more question. Sorry, this is so long. It's like, that's no problem, uh, Deep Camel. These are, these are great questions. Every time I think of you guys, or I think every time I'm washing, I think of this every time I'm washing dishes, but I never get around to actually sending you guys talk about the efficacy of hand washing all the time and the research that's been done, et cetera. But there seems to be uh, – but is there similar research on washing your dishes? Plates, serving dishes, cutlery, et cetera, all seem pretty low risk if the food has been through kill steps. But cutting boards freak me out. This is still uh, Deep Camel talking here, especially once they have grooves. Uh, is a once-over with a soapy sponge good enough or cookware to be receiving two rounds – or should uh, cookware receive – Two rounds of happy birthday-like hands, um, in, in, in which case, dear God, my dishes will take forever. Yeah, so, so that's an excellent point. So um, I would say washing dishes is similar but not the same as washing hands. Um, and it's, my answer is kind of like the answer that I gave with the Camelback. Um, 
hands are not exactly analogous to raw chicken, but they're biological. So hands have natural oils. Hands also have an irregular surface, which may render microorganisms inaccessible to, to cleaning or to sanitizers. Um, silverware and dishes are actually a much more regular surface, and I think that they are more readily and easily cleaned by soap. So the main the main point when you're washing dishes is you want to use hot water um, or you know warm warm water. I mean, don't you don't have to, but it's, but it, it may be helpful in, in liberating the food particles. Um, uh, so use uh, again hot water, warm water, and soap to try to liberate uh, food particles from the surface. As long as you get rid of essentially all the food particles and then you air dry, you should be in pretty good shape. Um, if you uh, want to uh, add a sanitizing step as an additional protection, uh, I don't know of too many people that do this in their own home. Most people also don't have a triple sink in their own home. Uh, but if you wanted to, um, what you would do is you would need to basically uh, wash the dishes, um, uh, put them in the dish rack to dry, uh, drain the sink, refill the sink with sanitizer, and then uh, put the dishes through the sanitizer and then put them out again to air dry again. So um, I do I do think his comment about cutting boards is a good one, and um, if the cutting board does develop grooves, those grooves could track trap food and and may harbor microorganisms as well. So again, what we do in my house, as I, I think I've often talked about, is we'll wash our dishes in the dishwasher. We'll wash plastic cutting boards in there as well. Um, the dishwasher water gets uh, hot. Um, it doesn't necessarily get hot enough to sanitize, but our automatic dishwasher does have a sanitized cycle. And so we can put it on the sanitized cycle, which will get the, the water temperature up to the point where it can sanitize, uh, probably analogous to a dish machine in a restaurant. Um, and then you probably want to upgrade to new cutting boards if the, the cutting boards are getting old and especially uh, scarred. So yeah, so that, that's that's my thoughts on uh, cleaning dishes. Got anything to add? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I just sent you a link uh, from a paper that I was reading last week because we're doing some uh, some work for an observation study that we're going to do next year on uh, cleaning and sanitizing and trying to define that in a consumer home. And so there was a paper from Barker et al. from 2003 that looked at um, cleaning and sanitizing. Uh, it, well, the title is Effects of Cleaning and Disinfection in Reducing Salmonella Contamination in a Laboratory Model Kitchen. And um, the it, it's kind of an, like, an interesting one if you start to look at um, the the data a little bit because they – so they, they really have they, – they go with sort of five different cases. One, a bowl wash and then a bowl wash and rinse and then a bowl wash rinse plus hypochlorite. Uh, so plus, um, you know, having uh, uh, chlorine for at 500 ppm for a minute, then a bowl wash and rinse plus hypochlorite uh, at 500 ppm for five minutes, and then a bowl wash and rinse plus hypochlorite at 5,000 ppm uh, for one minute. And um, as you kind of like look through through the the data, um, for the most part, having a bowl wash and rinse your, um, you get a very, um, you get a similar reduction, um, compared to what you would see with, um, uh, and with, with food contact surfaces, um, with, uh, with, with the sanitizer until you get to 5,000 PPM for one minute. And that's really not reasonable. I don't think so. So essentially all of them give you a similar, um, uh, chance of, uh, of reduction. But the thing that, that I kind of like, 
highlight as I read this is that drawing, which is something that you mentioned, Don, we talked about with cutting boards, isn't really uh, focused on in this uh, in this study. And so it um, that aspect of being able to dry. Um, let let uh, surfaces air dry and dry out. Um, you know, remove water that's available for pathogens uh, to grow. Really is going to impact um, this at the end because that's what we do in um, in a in a home um, wa- you know, dishwash uh, system. But there isn't as much there isn't as much in this. Um, in this area, uh, in washing dishes in consumer homes, as there is in um, in cutting boards, um, so it's it, you know it's an area that there there are a few different things that are out there, uh, but um, but this isn't like a a, a, a really um, well published in area. So yeah, and I'm I'm looking at the paper itself, um, and I'm not sure. I'm I'm I don't I'm I don't know. I mean they they do have a lot of replicates. I'm trying to make some sense out of the out of the paper. Um yeah. by and looking at it rather quickly. I'm a little I'm a little skeptical like I don't understand why figure 1 has probability of contamination and that, not, yeah. and not counts. That's what they the and because they're so um you know, if you look at table two in this, they talk about initial contamination and the percentage of frequency. So they're, they're like anything over one CFU gets into probability, right? Right. Which also isn't all that realistic because they had in um, and this was uh, table two is with hands wash. Um, they didn't have anything detectable if you if uh, hands were treated um, greater than a hundred CF fuse per hand, I think. Yeah. It, anyway, we, we could probably come back to this, um, this one after we have some more time to look at it. Yeah. I, I, I you know, and I, I do know, um, I know Bloomfield, I know the author Bloomfield, the, uh, they published, um, you know, a bunch of stuff in this, in this area. Um, so I recognize the, the laboratory, um, but I'm, I, yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I, and I, you know, from a practical point of view, I, no one's going to be using five thousand or five hundred no. ppm, and they're certainly not going to be using 5,000. five thousand. You know, they no. might be using twenty-five or fifty, um, but that's a really that's a very very highly chlorinated uh, solution to be using. Yeah, so. I, I, I think the chlorine spray bottle that that I use that's pre-formulated is at a hundred ppm. Right, so it's the the commercially available ones aren't even in this five hundred range. Yeah, and that's gonna that's gonna stain countertops. It's gonna stain clothing. I mean, it's gonna bleach, yeah. bleach countertops, clothing. It's, it's probably gonna want to get it on your hands. It's probably gonna eat up your hands. So, yeah, I yeah. I'm uh, yeah. We should come back. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna consider uh, reading this uh, uh, article to be homework for me. Um, uh, that I will definitely do because uh, that sounds way more fun than listening to a podcast. Although although I will listen to the Nigella part. But anyway, I'm gonna. <laughs> Nice. I'm gonna I'm gonna take this on as homework for myself. Um, All right. Well, good. Well, I think I think that's it for listener feedback. Um, you put a bunch more stuff in the Dropbox. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I did. Well, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about, um, and it was uh, a, a recall um, that popped up last week, um, 
and uh, I guess a week and a half ago, um, and it was a recall due to some illnesses, and so it's a FSIS um, uh, press release from October 3rd. Johnson County Hams recalls ready-to-eat ham products due to possible listeria contamination. Um, the Ready Deli Loaf hams were produced from April 3rd, 2017 to October 2nd, 2018. On September 27th, FSIS was notified that a person ill with listeriosis reported consuming a ham pro- product uh, produced at Johnson County Hams. Working in conjunction with CDC, and state public health and agricultural partners, FSIS determined that there is a link between the LM illness and actually other illnesses and ham products produced at Johnson County Hams. Um, and I, this is notable to me because it, Johnson County Hams is uh, is in Johnson County, North Carolina, which is about 30 miles uh, south of where I'm sitting right now. Um, so the epidemiological or epidemiologic evidence uh, identified a total of four listeriosis confirmed illnesses, including one death between July 8th, 2017 and August 11th, 2018. FSIS collected two deli ham product samples from Johnson County hams um, in 2016 and in early 2018. So my guess is that those samples were part of um, routine regulatory steps. And I, this is the part I want to talk about a little bit more. So whole genome sequencing result, results showed that the LM identified in Delaham both years was closely related genetically to the LM from ill individuals. So from a whole genome sequence epidemiological link, it looks like we've got a link between these, these products. And so a couple of things came up. So I, you know, I saw this, this outbreak, um, notification and it was notable because it was close to me. And so I was like, okay, here, you know, here's a, uh, a product, a ready to eat ham product that has, um, uh, listeria in it. Not, not surprising. Notable that we have some illnesses and again, whole genome sequencing going back in time, um, to, to look at these, these illnesses. Um, we don't have a whole lot of information yet on when those illnesses happened. I guess, you know, the most earliest one would be July 8th, 2017. The most recent one, uh, August, uh, 11, 2018, and then two more in between those. Um, and how well that matches up with the time of when the early 2018 sample was taken. Um, but I, I had a text exchange and, um, with somebody a little bit about this and, and I'm going to not, um, you know, sort of say who this was, but it's someone who's working with a, um, a customer of Johnson County hams to establish how this could happen. And this customer takes that ham and they make it into another product. That's a ready to eat product. And the, our, our text exchange was really in, and this harkens back to our conversation about, um, you know, not ready to eat chicken products that look ready to eat. The, the question was these, um, the products that the, this individual's, um, customer, and you know, uh, purchaser of, of Johnson County hams makes is a is a biscuit sandwich that they say things on the on the packaging that say um, you know cook for um, cooking instructions say to heat at 350 degrees for 15 to 20 minutes until thoroughly reheated, and that shouldn't be a problem, right? If it's a ready to eat ham item that doesn't have listeria in it, um, and. My my guess as I read inside or read between the lines here is that the the company that's working with the person that I know 
is maybe linked to the illnesses because um, they, you know, the questions were about, well, how could it be that consumers don't follow these, you know, the, the, these um, instructions? And if they did follow the instructions, they wouldn't get sick. And, and it just comes back to a comment that you made earlier that we say all the time is just because someone says it on a package, it's mentioned on a label, it's involved in validated cooking instructions, doesn't mean that someone's actually going to do it. And what one of the messages that I sent back to this individual is even though it's a ready-to-eat food item, um, they probably need to have something about you know, uh, an actual temperature and whether that's above 135 or above 165, that's a risk management decision. But if you purchase something that's ready to eat and then you freeze it and you want someone else to, to, uh, you want a customer or consumer to handle that correctly, you better tell them what temperature they need to, to cook it to. Because right now it, the consumer may have grabbed this product and it is a ready to eat product. They don't need to do anything at all with it. They could just let it thaw in their lunchbox and eat it at, at work. Um, and and you haven't given them really enough information to protect themselves, although it should be ready to eat and it shouldn't have any listeria in there. Um, the, the question that, that comes up is, um, as it was shared with to me, these hams are, are apparently cooked in the bag. And so it's it becomes an issue on, I guess, validation step of that cooking process. Or one of the things that that I brought up was maybe the listeria is not on on the not in the product itself, but the contamination's on the outside of the bag. And during the opening of these bags, it then um, contaminates the ham that that then you know isn't going to be cooked um, any further or heated up at all. And that's the part that that I guess we don't really know from USDA FSIS is when they say collecting two deli ham product samples, was it cooked in the bag? Did they open it up? Uh, where Where is this listeria uh, coming from? And if it's in the bag, then it seems like there's a validation issue. Um, you know, that if it's if it's fully cooked in there, there's a heat uh, heating step. Then then there shouldn't be any listeria on the inside of the bag. So, so I don't know. I don't know where to where to kind of go. I just wanted to share that kind of you know these conversations are going on and and it's kind of you know a, a conversation that we wouldn't have had a bunch of years ago when whole genome sequencing wasn't wasn't um, used right. Like these these illnesses probably aren't connected at all to ham. It's not an outbreak. It's not a recall. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? And you might be on mute. Uh, yeah, sorry. Oh. Uh, you know, it's very, it's very, it's very. Con- I'm very confused by the icons. Um, the the whole the whole genome sequencing thing. I think this is definitely something that came to our attention because of whole genome sequencing. But I've got, I've still got so many questions. Right? Like, like why? So, once or a simple question: the four people that got sick. Can you tell us something about them? Were they? Right pregnant? Were they immunocompromised? Were they elderly? Okay. Um, do, what do we know about what those people ate? Did they eat this product? Did they eat this sandwich product that you're talking about? Um, and then to your point, if I go to the store and I buy like a ham biscuit that is ready to eat, 
you know, I, 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 yeah, I might heat it in the oven for quality, but I'm not going to heat it for, for safety. Um, and then also, we know that listeria tends to be a high-dose pathogen. So that, 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 that probably if people got sick from this product, even if they were elderly, even if they were immunocompromised, the product would have had to have been temperature abused. So tell me, tell me more about again exactly which product these people ate, um, the, and also these are ham products. They've got high salt. They may. I, I want to know like which which USDA um, uh, uh, category they're in. Are they category one, two, or three? In other words, will listeria grow in this product? Right, and if it was post process contamination and it doesn't doesn't support the growth, then I've got to scratch my head as to why we even have, um, have these illnesses. So, um, all of that, all that, right. There's just so much here that I just like, there's a lot of information, but there's so much information that I, we just don't know. It seems very. And then also the other question is if FSIS found listeria in finished product, um, in, 2016, in, in 2006 and early 2018, why wasn't there a recall? Right. Or, or maybe there was, and they, and but these products weren't implicated. I don't know. I guess so. Me, yeah. I, I, I didn't do my like digging on that. I'll Google away here. Maybe there was a, a recall um, back then. I didn't. I don't. I, I didn't see it. Um, and I'm, as I'm looking here, I don't, I don't see anything in the, in the Google, um, you know, kind of, kind of stuff like, and, and you know, often that'll get linked somewhere, right? Like someone will talk about it. Um, and then the, the other thing is there are some secondary cases of recall, right? Like, like this person's client who's then making what they think is ready product and they're going to have to recall their, their hams or their ham products. Um, yeah, it's a really um, I don't know. Um, but, but it, so, so maybe hopefully, you know, every once in a while people listen to this and then we get little, uh, back channel, uh, conversations that come through, uh, Snapchat and Pinterest and, uh, and LinkedIn tell us, uh, more information. So hopefully someone who's listening knows a little more and can tell us a little bit more about it, but it's a really, um, yeah, it's a really interesting one. And, and if it's in like it just comes down to me, it's like if it's if you have a cooked in the bag product and it has listeria in it, then something's wrong with your cooking process or something's wrong with your bags. Right, right, and and if it's post process contamination, well, again, like we don't know enough. Like if it's yeah, if if it's a if it's a bag if it's a cooked in bag product, then it it shouldn't it shouldn't yeah yeah it's a validation issue right yeah and if or it, yeah. Or if this is, and, and this came up, I think, in the uh, CRF foods, frozen foods, whole genome sequencing um, linked outbreak back in 2016, I think it was, where you had the same or very similar genetic, um, very similar genome at two different plants at the same kind of time. And maybe there's a geographical issue, right? Like this Johnson County ham, maybe this isn't even a Johnson County ham issue. Maybe there's something else that's, that's, that's close by, um, in, uh, that's out, that's out there, um, that I, I mean, that we just don't know about that, 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 yeah, maybe it was found in the product, um, but they're not, it's not actually linked to this type of product. I mean, all of that stuff is possible here. An interesting one. 
but but also um, think back to Bluebell, right? Where we've in that outbreak, we've got seven uh, seven illnesses and three deaths. Here, we've got four illnesses and one death. And I don't think we're seeing the same kind of uh, focus and coverage on Johnson County hams uh, that that we that we saw in Bluebell for that most beloved um, uh, brand. And you know, just the the public health and epi- not public health, the economic impacts of that business are a little different than than what we're seeing here so far. Yeah, and and it's it's a small small number of cases, but it but again, it's it's still it, it, yeah. And, and there's there's tons of stuff on the internet. If you just if you do a search for uh, Johnson County ham recall, there's there's lots and lots of stuff. And and to your to your point about secondary recalls, um, you know, like here's one uh, from uh, Charleston based uh, Cali's Biscuits, uh, which yep. is again, you know, they they source the ham and then they put it in in their own biscuits. Um, you know, sort of similar to the situation you were talking. I'm not saying that you were talking about Cali's Biscuits, yeah. but but similar kind of a a situation. And so, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, there's just, there's just so much that we don't know yet about this. It's really, it's a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah. And, and, I, and we might never know, you know, we might never, this might be it, right? Like this might be the end of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And then right now there's just a, like all of the top Google hits are on this current recall. So I, I was searching for recalls just to try to see if there was recall in 2016. Um, yeah, but, I could, uh, it's, you you looked as well. Yeah. So yeah. Um, well, there. Yeah. So maybe someone knows why there wasn't a recall. Maybe it was product that never left left the plant. Right. Test and hold kind of process. Could be. And, yeah. Yeah. Could be. And that's maybe why they're only going back to 2017. Um, um, all right. So the last thing that I had for us to talk about um, was a tweet that you sent me yesterday that came from Max Temkin, <laughs> which is uh, uh, a, a link to a video on Twitter that we'll link to in show notes um, about a guy who is streaming uh, something on Twitter um, about you know making making some uh, some chicken, and uh, he uh, is uh, washing his chicken in his in his sink, which is which is interesting in its own. But then he washes it with uh, dish soap, and then uh, he's getting comments on his phone about people are telling him. And he's like leans in and he's looking at the comments, and he's like, "Well, I washed it because they said to wash it." And then he says, "Oh, not with soap." Oh, and then he runs <laughs> off. And it's just a great. It, I mean, it's great food safety content um, in in general, but but also kind of a. Uh, a, a comical uh, a video, um, and so uh, you know uh, we we've been doing work on washing chicken. So uh, washing poultry is probably not um, the best practice, not needed. Probably does a pretty good job contaminating your sink, um, and uh, and don't, don't so use don't, soap. <laughs> and don't use soap. Yeah, yeah. You use soap on your sink afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's a tweet from the Based Messiah, uh, who I might just start following on Twitter because I think it was pretty funny. <laughs> A, a funny uh, video. Yeah, we will link to that in uh, show notes. Yeah. So, uh, so that's all I got. What else? You got anything else? No, I think that's a show. I think that's a show. Um, so, um, a, a shout out again to anybody who um, listens and is interested in us uh, coming to do a live podcast. We've now done uh, three of them in three different uh, types of locations, and uh, I think we'd be up for more of that. So, um, uh, someone asked us a while ago what it would take to get us there. Really, we're we're cheap. Just to pay our pay our airfare and get us a place to to uh, to sleep and uh, and give us some people to talk to. And I think we'd be up for more. Uh, 
for live food safety talk podcasts. Um, and uh, go ahead and rate us on iTunes and um, give us you know, keep the feedback coming in and keep telling us about your everyday food safety things because it gives us a lot of nice material to talk about. Yeah, and thanks to everybody uh, that, that reached out to us to give us uh, eating recommendations in the Rochester area. Um, a, a number of those came in. <clears throat> after uh after we did the show so we'll try if we have uh, live shows coming up we rel- we we probably we should probably recognize the fact that many of you um don't listen to the shows as soon as they post and so we should do a better job of advanced promotion and apologies for people that wanted to come to the geneseo show but didn't find out in time uh we'll, we'll try to do a better job of advanced promotion for all of that yeah and and we're always up for like meetups anywhere that there's a place that we can have some uh, some beer and wine and hang out with listeners. Uh, I think we're all up uh, up all into that. So we had a a lovely uh, dinner with some um, some faculty members at Geneseo, some of whom listened to us and some of whom who didn't, but do food safety stuff and food waste and sustainability. So um, yeah, so it's it was cool, uh, and we'll uh, uh, we're up for more of that stuff. So if you want to have us uh, come come visit, we uh, we'll get something on the calendar. Absolutely. All right, Don. Thanks again. uh, And I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Indeed. So, uh, okay, what am I got in my calendar here? Were you? I got. I've got a an Athens, Georgia question for you since you lived there for a little bit. Uh, were you? We may have already talked about this, but did you? Were you caught up in the uh, REM uh, vibe of Athens in the in the eighties? Oh, when you were so there? yeah. So uh, one of my great regrets in life, and <clears throat> I don't have too many was that I could have seen REM at the 40-watt club, and I did not do that. And so oh uh, they were playing in Athens at the time. The B-52s were playing in Athens at the time. They were just starting to make it big, and uh, I did not uh, I did not go to uh, I did not go to see them. And that's a, that's a uh, great, great, great regret of mine. Well, I'm going 
to um, to Athens in February because my kid uh, is playing in a hockey tournament there. There's a coliseum that has out, outside ice on the UGA campus. And so both of my kids have all of a sudden in the last couple of weeks become very big REM fans. So we're going to, I'm going to try and do like a, there's got to be like an REM tour or experience of, of Athens. Um, that's that, that includes the, you know, uh, the 40 watt club and all that kind of stuff. Well, where it used to be, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think it used to be, I think, I think it's no longer, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a music venue. Oh, okay. Yep. It is still there. It's, but it's at its third location. It has moved. Ah, okay. Uh, the 40 watt club was due to the single 40 watt light bulb that hung from the ceiling. Exactly. Exactly. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, so I, did, I do have to say, I did frequent uh, Wux Tree Records, um, uh, which is a, was a record store at the time, and that's where Peter Buck and Michael Stipe met. Um, and I think I think one of them um, used to work there, and I might yeah, have I, think, even, I might have even um, seen him when he was working there. So yeah, I think Peter Buck did uh, from yeah. from what I remember. Um, so yeah, okay, cool. Well, we're gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna check out Athens. So if, so you have to give me when I go there, you're gonna have to give me uh, some eating recommendations. Uh, oh well, so it's a lot of back the, in the day. Yeah, a lot of the places I used to go uh, are not are not no longer active. But um, uh, so I, I there's not much I can I can do to to help you out there. But uh, there is a very nice uh, uh, Athens REM Athens itinerary which I just found on the internet. So I will I will put that in the show notes. That's what I'm. Yep, there it is. I just found it too. Look at that. This is going to be awesome. Retro vibes. Got to go Weaver D's for lunch. Yeah. The establishment is responsible for automatic for the people. Okay. The phrase started out as the simple motto for Weaver D's delicious fine foods. There you go. All right. I did not know that. Not me either. All right. Cool. Uh, Let's take a look here. So our, if we stick on schedule, uh, we'd be up for recording again on the 29th of October. Does that, how does that hit you? That's actually wide open. Perfect. Me too. So let's, let's go with nine 30 again. I like that time and I'm, I am wide open all morning. So if yeah, we that's, something that's, that's fine. I, I've got a teleconference in the afternoon. That's all. So, okay. All right. FST one. This was okay. So what do we? This one was one sixty five. No, I, I oh oh yeah because well you have the odds so maybe it's I don't might one might be one sixty seven. Yeah. Oh yeah, we did one sixty five. One sixty six is Genesee. This is one sixty five. Yep. So then we do one sixty eight. All right. Um, I also, I have, uh, I have treats for you, but, um, they're one is being procured and the other one is being constructed. So I'm just giving you the heads up. Is, is one of them a ham biscuit? I really could go for a ham biscuit right now. (laughs) Could you make sure you reheat it in your microwave just to like 120? Oh, it'll make the biscuits soggy though. I have to get a toaster oven. But the oh, only toaster oven we have is in the lab, and we put salmonella in it. So I probably I have to wait and toast it at home. But if you put salmonella in it, just just to, just uh, set it on high for a while. Well, Cook the so and well, put some water in there. Here, here's the thing: I know I could make it safe, <clears throat> but yeah, it would be in violation of university rules, which I never do. 
That's true. Don't break those rules. I'm with you. I hey, I have my um, it, just in the ongoing update and saga of IRB. Um, <laughs> I uh, to your uh, your suggestion is something that I'm uh, excited about. I will be joining our IRB, and I have my uh, training session this week on Wednesday for a couple hours to to go over uh, being an IRB board member. Cool. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm excited. I'm 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 very excited for it for lots of reasons. One, and I, I agree with you, the, um, the you know your experience with uh, biosafety stuff um, that this will make me better at doing IRB. But I'm also just interested in hearing what other people are doing. Right, like it's kind of cool to hear these other studies um, that are going on and see if there's things that I can learn from it and and uh, and see stuff out there. So yeah, and I think it's really I mean, so in in the food world of food science, we do stuff that very much relates to people's everyday lives, and so I think it's very important that we we serve on committees like this because we interge- we can interject a bit of realism and and we have a very like we we deal with a a field where we deal with risk every day and we manage risk or we work with risk managers every day and so that's really what <clears throat> What IRB and institutional biosafety committees do is they really deal with risk, and so I think we have we have something to bring to the party, and so I'm I'm glad to see that you're that you're doing that. And uh, I, again, I found my university biosafety committee work to be you know tremendously like it's very it's it's service it takes time but it's rewarding service. You feel like you're doing yeah. you feel like you're doing good work. So yeah, I'm looking I'm looking forward to it. So I'll update you next time we talk. I'll tell you how the how the training went. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Uh, well, so I've got this one. If yep. you, I'm gonna, I'll get, so I'll get the sh- Geneseo one posted. I'm going to try to get it done today if I can, but if not, um, like by midweek at the latest. Cool. Well, and I'll just plan to post this on, on Monday okay. or something next, next Monday. Right. Okay. So, cause that way we would be like sometime this week, sometime next week, and then sometime the week after. Cause we'll be, yeah. And then we should be all caught up. Sounds good. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.